0: I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Base Layer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Arca, where David Nage is a principal. Arca is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This episode of Base Layer is brought to you by Nexo. Nexo is instant and efficient, just like the SAD. They offer a complete digital asset banking service featuring savings accounts with up to 12% interest, digital asset credit for just 5.9% APR, in exchange with 75 digital asset and fiat pairs and top prices, and loads more all wrapped up for you in a single Nexo wallet. Try it now at nexo.io, that's n-e-x-o.io, or search for the Nexo Wallet app on Google Play or in the App Store. There's nearly 60 billion in the DeFi ecosystem today. The platforms are incredible, but there's still one major issue, fees. That's why I'm glad to partner with Paraswap. They've quickly become the connective tissue between various DeFi apps, including DEXs and other DeFi services like Compound and Aave. The new algorithm brings your gas costs down by 30%. If you want to access DeFi platforms, with the cheapest fee possible, I highly recommend PowerSwap. This is David, and this is your new episode of Layer. and again, I have the fortune of having Sergey Nazarov, the co-founder of Chainlink, with me today. Sergey, how are you? I'm doing well, David. Thanks for having me. So not normally do I have a co-founder founder of one of the projects, companies out there on my show once or twice, not three times, not four times, but... Chainlink, in my opinion, has been one of the more important pieces of the overall infrastructure of what we are seeing now in the development of digital assets, especially on the Ethereum side with their work with smart contracts. And so there is a body of conversations that Sergey and I have had over the last two years plus of the show being run, where we go into what a Oracle is, what we talk about in terms of Chainlink's position in this world But what we're going to do today is talk a little bit more specifically about some things that have recently happened. And so we're going to dive right into this. So there's a number of things we're going to be touching on. And so again, as I said, again, for the listeners who are still learning about digital assets, that are still learning about what Chainlink does, there are other interviews with Sergey that you can check out on Apple or Spotify or any place you listen to podcasts. But for today, Sergey, we're going to talk about a number of different things. So in the Chainlink 2.0 white paper, you talk about hybrid smart contracts. How do hybrid smart contracts go beyond what smart contracts can do today?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, David. So I think the important nuance to understand is the different building blocks of what make a smart contract and how those building blocks influence what the larger blockchain industry is about, right? So, his, historically, you initially had Bitcoin and you didn't even have other protocols or other capabilities to do anything other than do a Bitcoin transaction. So there were many years where all you could do was a Bitcoin transaction. And then there was the appearance of what were then called app coins in 2013 and 14. That was basically the first initial infrastructure beyond Bitcoin that used the same principles of decentralization and consensus and security. And then those were improved upon by Ethereum, that gave scriptable capabilities, right? So they gave the abilities. Uh, Ethereum gave us the ability to make scriptable smart contracts on a few topics. Mm-hmm. Those topics were relatively limited as far as you know tokenization, private key voting DAOs, and maybe defining the conditions of contracts. What what hybrid smart contracts are are it, are another evolution even further on, on the continuum of what smart contracts are capable of, right? So if we initially started with smart contracts being about basically multi-signature of Bitcoin transactions, we've gone through a few iterations of what blockchain infrastructure and decentralized infrastructure generally can provide. And we've now arrived, um, in, in in my opinion, and as defined in, in the Chainlink 2.0 white paper, we've arrived at a world of hybrid smart contracts. And you actually already see hybrid smart contracts working today in the form of DeFi, mm-hmm. right? So DeFi can can actually be defined primarily as a hybrid smart contract, other than the ones that are about tokenization indexes. So a hybrid smart contract is the combination of an on-chain piece of code that defines the conditions of the agreement. And then it's the off-chain resources that are made tamper-proof Uh, commonly through something called the Decentralized Oracle Network. And the combination of off-chain resources, such as market data, weather data, randomness, sports data, whatever whatever events that are out in the real world or whatever inputs that the contract requires, together with the tamper-proof, immutable guarantees of a piece of on-chain code, forms a hybrid smart contract, right? So if you actually look at the lending markets, the derivatives uh, protocols, and all the other more advanced smart contracts that are live on Ethereum and other chains that define DeFi, they are already in these, uh, they're already in this hybrid smart contract format because they're fundamentally combining the on-chain guarantees of smart contract code that defines the agreement Mm -hmm. together with a certain level of assurance about an off-chain event. And it's that level of off-chain assurance, that high level of assurance, that the centralized Oracle networks and the Chainlink network are are responsible for and have a key role to play in. And so the the 2.0 white paper is about this hybrid smart contract architecture and how it's going to continue to define and actually redefine the blockchain industry as people build more and more advanced smart contracts, as well as the role that decentralized Oracle networks have to play in um, in the proper operation of, of more and more hybrid smart contracts.
0: I would love... So this is going to get into the technical. So we're going to talk about the advancements outlined in the white paper and the future of the DeFi ecosystem and its adoption. But I would also love to hear in terms of the Oracles. We've been talking now for a few years, and so we'd love to hear also from the technical standpoint how many more oracles are there today than there were a few years ago? How has that also progressed? So let's talk about the technical advancements that you outlined in the white paper. And again, what does that mean for the future of DeFi? And as we talk obviously right now, DeFi has gone from $800 million in total value locked at the end of April of 2020 to over $75 billion today and continues to rise. So we'd love to hear kind of a few different thoughts about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, I think DeFi is actually the first um, real killer use case beyond tokenization for blockchains, right? So historically, blockchains have been used for tokenization, signing key uh, pri- signing transactions with private keys, mm-hmm. and DAO voting, which is essentially often a combination of tokenization and private key signing, and that's what's been the defining use case of our industry. But that's really kind of like saying that the internet is about unencrypted email, right? The internet might have been about unencrypted email at a certain point in time when that was the predominant use of the internet at mm-hmm. the very, very early stages. But now I think what we're seeing is that DeFi is, is is creating a more advanced use of on-chain code with the help of off-chain decentralized services provided by decentralized Oracle networks. Mm-hmm. So the rate at which those decentralized Oracle networks and those decentralized services appear seems to be a large determining factor for how many more advanced hybrid smart contracts can go live, both in the form of DeFi, decentralized insurance, blockchain gaming, fraud-proof ad networks, and any number of other use cases, right? DeFi is really just the, the first one, right? So just like the internet initially had unencrypted email, and then it went on to more use cases, going live on the internet and therefore mm-hmm. people began to understand the internet not as an uh, unencrypted email service for universities, but as an encrypted email service for businesses or as a messenger picture sharing service, right? right. As as more use cases go live, the infrastructure and what it, it does for people is redefined. The amount of oracles that we've uh, seen go live now since Chainlink went live um, you know, has been ordered. You know, hundreds of times larger, right? Mm-hmm. So we're currently at hundreds of Oracle networks, and if you actually plot the rate at which we put data on chain, you'll see that's very correlated with the rate at which new DeFi markets and various protocols are able to launch more markets, and in, in some cases able to launch their protocol at all. Because once again, when you think about what um, a decentralized financial product is, what a DeFi contract is. It is the on-chain code, and it is the off-chain data proving something about the market, giving it prices, giving it information. And it's actually one of the first and simplest iterations of this design pattern. As you have more and more decentralized services, as you go from hundreds of Oracle networks to thousands, you actually get a much wider array of different decentralized services Mm -hmm. that can be combined into one application. Right so if you look at how applications are actually built out in the web world which is a good analog for where you know our industry is going you you see that something like Uber is really the combination of multiple services right with some right. code you have a database you have the core code of Uber and then you have an API to get the user's location you have an API to send a message to the user through Twilio and you have an API to pay the driver through something like Stripe right and it's really the combination of core code on top of a database, together with the various um, off-chain, uh, sorry, the various API resources, that allows something like uh, Uber to get built. Mm-hmm. And I think the analogy is is one to one, really, to what you have in our industry, where blockchains are essentially the databases, smart contracts are the application code, the core logic of the application, mm-hmm. and then Oracle networks are really the entire world of services, right? The world of various data services, randomness services, uh, payment services, messaging services, all the services that um, web applications use are now coming into the decentralized Web3 world through the decentralized Oracle network kind of model, which Chainlink pioneered and created in the the 1.0 white paper. And now in the 2.0 white paper, we're basically showing a path about how that scales. Mm -hmm. And as that scales... I think what you see is more data, and as you see more data and more services, you see not only more um, individual DeFi contracts, but you see the composition of those decentralized Oracle networks and their services into single contracts that are more advanced, which eventually means that the decentralized uh, web's value to users is equivalent, reaches feature parity on certain features with the web world, but then it has core features about transparency and risk mitigation and control that the web world will never have. And so once we reach feature parity with the web world on all the other features, we will inherently have um, very valuable features that the web world can't have. And then it will quite simply be a matter of why wouldn't I build a decentralized application? It's just as easy. It's just as cost efficient, but I get all these additional benefits.
0: So you're talking about a very large expansion, which you and I and anyone who's been involved in this space for a number of years has always envisioned. And obviously, one could say that that expansion has started to happen much faster than we might have actually modeled ourselves. We were, many of us probably thought in the next five or 10 years, we might have seen the innovations that we're having today. But I think it's fair to say that the events that have happened over the last year have incrementally and exponentially sped up those innovations and that interest in doing those types of operations. And so I'm curious, as we go beyond DeFi, we are now seeing such a massive interest in NFTs, and then there's going to be gaming and some other different sectors that are popping up right now that are focusing on digital asset blockchain infrastructure. And so I'm curious, and then this is, I want you just to opine about this. So, Ethereum, for all intents and purposes, the GUI on Ethereum has been fairly dramatic over the last few weeks. You know, there was a lot of people who have been, you know, talking about the gas fees have obviously gone up quite significantly over the last few weeks. That happens time and time again, obviously, as you start to have a lot of activity on the Ethereum L1. You have a lot of gas that has to go through if you want to have your transactions done faster, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm curious, we have started to see a divergence or at least new entrance of different L1s with Solana now getting into the DeFi world in a fairly significant way. You also have Flow tackling the NFT gaming collectible side of things. Do you see a world where Chainlink is interoperable with all of these different l1s going forward yeah
1: yeah absolutely i mean we we already are interoperable we're already live on many of those l1s and uh and and some l2s um at the end of the day um i think Chainlink's announced with over 95 different chains and uh many of those chains were already live on and in different stages of integrating with to go live and the 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 value of that is 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 our ability to provide data to smart contract developers in various environments, and in fact, I think what'll what'll happen is there'll be a multitude of different, um, a multitude of different vertically focused environments that are that are good at something, right? Where somebody decides to put a lot of value um, for some reason, whether it's related to the supply chain or whether it's related to decentralized financial products or decentralized insurance or gaming or art ownership or or whatever and and at the end of the day you'll 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 actually need all of these decentralized services both in all of these environments and you'll also actually have a need to interact with a multitude of different chains basically because certain people or certain groups of value holders have decided to put value in like some kind of vertically focused derivatives chain maybe because the the application that um that is very good at making derivatives is for some reason on that chain right so you're you're, you're 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 still going to see a multitude of different chains that essentially have liquidity and value fed into them by certain key applications right this is partly what you see with binance smart chain and and some of the other exchange chains and then you're going to see that also in the non-exchange chains and um I, I think all of that is going to continue and eventually get um, fragmented on a on a geographic level um I think there will be certain chains where, there's a public dynamic, and people go there to to get the most um, to maybe launch a protocol or get the most value possible into their protocol. And I think Ethereum has a very strong strong role to play uh, to play in that. And that's the role it's currently playing. It's currently still the, the the place where people want to launch DeFi protocols, basically because there's the most value for um, the DeFi protocol to get right. So if I launch a DeFi protocol in Ethereum, there's so much value in the Ethereum network that I have a, a greater chance of getting value into my DeFi protocol, right? And so that's that's one of the main driving forces there. But aside of, aside from that driving force, there will still be many different chains that have applications that choose to put liquidity and value into them. And so I think there will be significant amounts of value in all of these chains. Some of them will become maybe more vertically focused on certain use cases that mm-hmm. they are particularly well built for. And others might become more adopted on um, governmental or a country level, as we see in certain parts of Asia. There are certain dynamics that that basically that very clearly suggest that there will be an endorsement of a certain type of chain by, um, you know, by a government or by the country or by whoever. Mm-hmm. And and so you 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 basically get to a point where you do have some amount of fragmentation. Um, even though I think there will be certain chains that over time will um, start to own certain categories of activity, that's right. whether that's on a geographic basis or whether that's on a vertical basis or very possibly both, right? That's right. Um, I, I do think there will be a public public kind of blockchain dynamic, and I do think Ethereum is, is the leader there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the other chains don't have um, some dynamic of usership and some dynamic of value that people place onto those chains. That's right.
0: And I wanted people to realize that Chainlink is operating with many other different L1s. And so that's important as we are starting to see that diversity start to become a factor. And so I'm curious, as you alluded to uh, different sectors, different chains, different operating procedures, we are starting to see banks and some fintech companies embrace the world of DeFi um it is worth noting there have been some banks out there i think socken possibly was one of them that did a significant size of a bond offering i believe on ethereum and then you have obviously worth noting that large tier 1 institutions like goldman now have a reportedly uh started a digital asset group there finally uh you have city that is endorsing the uh the asset class in bitcoin specifically and so it is one by one, if you were to think of, you know, the the wall between East and West Berlin, the wall is coming down, if you will. And so how should banks and fintechs really prepare to interact with DeFi?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Abs- absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, just on your earlier point about Chainlink, y- yeah, we, we do cover many different chains, and we actually cover many different use cases. So I, I think it's an underappreciated point that Chainlink is the decentralized services kind of meta layer that creates all the services that both DeFi, crypto startups, and banks and fintechs all need on different chains. And the services are very varied. They're varied between price data, weather data, randomness, and even more advanced computation that happens within Oracle networks. So the the world of decentralized services is a world that spans across chains and across use cases, which I, I I think is 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 quite a, is quite an important point. To to your point about why you know how, or or why this is happening with banks and fintechs, um, I think banks and fintechs are really in in a situation that's going to mimic what's happened in public blockchain land, right? And I and I think they don't fully pay attention to that because they think that there's some kind of um, regulatory or identity difference. And while there is a regulatory and identity level difference between public chains and, and private chains that the banks and the fintechs might might have more interest in for privacy and, and um, identity and compliance reasons, I think there's a, a fundamental undertone to what people want to do, right? And I think the thing that's driving banks and fintechs to adopt cryptocurrency now, is, is quite simply user demand, right? These organizations exist and continue to exist and prosper on the basis of catering to user demand, right? They don't cater to their own ideas of the world. They don't cater to what they would like the world to be like. They cater to what their users want. And the, the banks and the FinTechs that don't do that, you know, by virtue of, of the capitalist systems kind of design, um, Pretty quickly, arrive at a state of irrelevance, right? And that's kind of how the free market, uh, kind of capitalist system works, and why it's it's the leading system for directing human activity uh, today, right? Mm-hmm. So, at, at the end of the day, um, if you think about it from that point of view, what what is the world that they that, that 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 they can look forward to? Well, the the world they're in now is is the one where custody has become an important um, capability. And, and it's become an important capability, once again, because users require it of them, right? Mm-hmm. They say, I want to have custody of a crypto asset through you. I want to own it. I want to have it. I want to purchase it. But, but really, that is the simplest behavior, right? That is a very simple behavior of acquis- acquisition, right? I want to acquire an asset. Right. Okay, that's a good, simple initial behavior, which, by the way you know, is the behavior of the crypto world for some time, right? Initially, the behavior of the crypto world was, I want to acquire a Bitcoin. That's the only thing I can actually acquire. For years, the only thing you could ever get was a Bitcoin, period. Right. Then you expand it to other tokens, right? And, 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 And then you expand it to these DeFi contracts for the simple reason that they provide yield, right? They provide yield and they provide a way to earn interest on the asset you already own. So at, at the simplest basis level, regardless of how, um, of how banks and fintechs want the world to develop or believe the world will develop, once people have custody of an asset at a fundamental um, kind of human desire level, they want to earn yield on that asset. That's that's what a lot of the global financial markets are. They're about giving people yield yield on assets that they that they're comfortable holding, right? In a transparent way where where people can manage risk, right? And so, if um, DeFi isn't isn't a concern for banks, but they are they are feverishly getting custody solutions in place, then I I think they're they're missing a step, right? The the next obvious step is that whatever you're custodying for people, they want to use. And they want to use it in more and more advanced ways. And they want to use it in ways that mitigate risk and create transparency and control for them. And that's what blockchains and DeFi gives them, right? So Mm -hmm. basically, the biggest hurdle is custody. Once people have custody, once everybody can go and buy whatever um, asset... Do 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 we really think that people will care about whether they get eight percent from a stablecoin or if they get one percent from a bank account? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to obviously choose the eight percent from a stablecoin. They don't even know need to know what a stablecoin is. Right. In fact, it actually sounds better, right? So the the real the real hurdle here, and this is this is the hurdle that the public blockchain world needed to clear, and that Ethereum helped the the public blockchain world clear is the world of custody and asset ownership right so there's so many different tokens that have so many varied propositions behind them and so many varied methods of of deriving their value you know such as stable coins or or, or us dollar backed stable coins or whatever whatever else there the there there is in in the world of tokens you you basically have an ecosystem where there's a lot of people holding value and It's not a surprising human behavior when those people decide to place their value into um, something that gives them a return. That's not—it's not rocket science to guess that that's 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 the next step. The 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 ignoring of that after you give people custody doesn't make sense. And if if everyone's going to want yield, if everyone's going to want to use DeFi, then the next logical step for all the banks and fintechs and everybody who's involved in custody right now is to be thinking about well, how will I interact with DeFi protocols and how will I interact with various DeFi protocols on various chains? The the answer we have to that is that they should acquire a a secure blockchain middleware that's integrated with many different chains Mm -hmm. and can give them easy access to many different DeFi protocols from one integration. And that's actually what Chainlink is for enterprises, right? right? So for public blockchains and for issuers, for creators of smart contracts, whether they're on public or private blockchains, the Chainlink network creates these decentralized oracle networks, each of which creates its own singular um, decentralized service. For enterprises that don't necessarily want to issue things, but they do want to connect to various blockchains and various DeFi protocols, Chainlink is actually a secure blockchain middleware that allows them to interact with the various chains. Mm -hmm. And and the fascinating thing is actually how this dynamic works together. So if the initial dynamic of our industry was custody and ownership and acquiring tokens that people feel have value, and the next dynamic is various fast-moving fintechs and crypto startups building Advanced financial products that then put pressure on banks and fintechs to also build financial products. Mm-hmm. Then the third dynamic is the enablement of the various um, institutions and enterprises that actually do want to use the Internet of Value and Internet of Contracts to successfully generate not only custody, but financial products for their user base, right. which, which once again is is something that they're primarily driven by, right? So the only reason banks and fintechs aren't building um, interfaces into DeFi protocols is because their users haven't yet asked because their users are still just busy getting getting the assets, Mm -hmm. right? Once the users say, I have the assets, I'd like to earn yield. Oh, this other app over here tells me I can get 8% yield on my Bitcoin or my stablecoin. What can you do for me? There's gonna be a mad dash to give give people access to that, just like there is a mad dash towards custody now. And I personally think that the fintechs and banks won't reinvent um DeFi protocols. They won't build their own blockchains. I, I don't think there's a reason for them to do that, just like they don't build infrastructure um a- around the internet that mm-hmm. they don't need to build. They just use infrastructure that other people have made. And so the DeFi protocols and the blockchain systems that run the DeFi protocols that are coming into um kind of you know, full scalability and full, full kind of polish today, full usability, are I think the ones the the same ones that banks and fintechs will use. They'll simply take their existing apps and their existing web interfaces and their existing branches, and they'll funnel liquidity and value from all of that infrastructure that controls user behavior and interacts with user behavior, and they'll just funnel it into these um, highly reliable, transparent. Easier and easier to access DeFi protocols on these various chains, and uh, you know that's that's where I think banks and fintechs will end up. They 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 won't end up building their own uh, open source DeFi protocols, just like they haven't built their own open source database software or their or their own internets. They're, they'll just use the infrastructure that um, that gives them the best result quickly right. because they're going to need it quickly once user demand quickly appears in the way we've seen it now appear for crypto asset ownership.
0: I personally can't wait for the day to see JP Morgan offering their clients the ability to go on yearn and earn yield from their assets. That is a very... Um, in your, in your opinion, I think that's actually something where they point to Uniswap or to sushi or to pancake, whatever it may be, um, and allow their, their clients to do that. That is a, a fascinating, you know, look into what the future may be, not in a very near term, you know, not in a very distant future, actually. And so, um, that's really interesting. I have to say again, that for those that are listening, that are learning about digital assets, Um, You know, I've had Sergey on now a few times, again, because the role that Chainlink plays is what I actually deem as the kind of the piping of what's happening out there. It is the 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 wiring, the piping, the the cords of all of these things that are making these things possible. And at the end of the day, the advent of the smart contract was something that has created, you know, decentralized finance has effectively helped. The advent of NFTs and things that are happening in gaming. So, I encourage you all to learn as much as you can about Chainlink. And, Sergey, as we're going uh, towards the top of the hour here, where can people really kind of interact best with Chainlink? Can they go to their website? Is there a form that they can learn more about? Where would you point people who are just starting to learn about this whole world? Where would you send them to go to learn about Chainlink?
1: Sure, sure. Chain.link is a good place. Um, our Twitter is somewhere where we consistently highlight some of the new use cases of Chainlink and how people are using the network and, and benefiting from the, the security of more and more advanced dons. So Twitter is a good place. I think reading the 2.0 white paper is um, is something that's important and something we've tried to make pretty accessible, and it has an overview of, of where things are going. And beyond that, also our YouTube channel, where we're consistently um, doing... AMAs and various conversations with the many different protocols that we work with and we uh, actually define some of the more advanced ideas around hybrid smart contracts and how people are building more advanced uh, hybrid smart contracts
0: Fantastic Again, Sergey Nazarov, co-founder of Chainlink, thank you for coming on again As always, I could talk to you for hours on here but we want to be mindful of your time and everyone else's, so thank you for coming on, we'll have you on again soon.
1: Great, thank you very much David, always great to chat with you, thank you
0: Thanks for listening in to Basslayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.